Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can go and open it up to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. It is great to be back up here. It's been, uh, I guess it's maybe been a, a couple of months maybe I've gotten to do this. A few things have changed in my life since last time I got up here. Last time I preached uh, that same Sunday, my wife, who was 37 weeks pregnant at the time, um, got rear-ended on 30 and pushed into the car in front of her. Uh, and that was a stressful experience. Um, she's fine. The baby was fine. Praise the Lord. Uh, our car was not fine. So, you know, total car, insurance, all that jazz, um, annoyances with that. Um, so that took place, but it was a miracle, honestly, that there were no issues, no problems with Arden Claire or the baby, and we praise the Lord for that. The miraculous things continue. Uh, a couple weeks later, uh, my son made his appearance, and so I brought a picture of him for you guys. Oh, yeah. There's Shepard. Uh, usually I'm hitting you guys with, like, historical anecdotes and random things. Um, you're welcome for just this. Uh, so you got to experience some cuteness that I get to experience every day. It's pretty awesome. Um, his mom and I are super proud of him and super excited. He's over there sleeping, you know. It turns out Jason's preaching and the only preaching that puts him to sleep. It's also mine. <laughs> And so that's good news. Um, <laughs> if he's ever having a hard time, I'll just break out a sermon and just go for it. Uh, then a couple weeks later, another miraculous thing took place. I've been a Rangers fan my entire life. My, my entire life. Yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't drop off the man. Like, I was there. Right? A whole, my entire life, my dad trained me up in the way I should go, and I have not departed from it. His father, who is in the audience tonight, uh, today, my, my grandparents, uh, D.L. and Alice Lowry, they're here. He's been a Rangers fan for, since 1972. Like, I mean, he's been a Rangers, and they, they finally won it, and it was an awesome thing. I will say my son, I've got a little bit of bitterness towards him, because he does not understand suffering. <laughs> Kid's been alive two weeks, they win a World Series, and I'm like, man, this is not, this is not how it usually goes. That's okay, he'll learn, unfortunately, probably. Um, he's got the Cowboys to root for, so that's how that'll go. And I just say, it's been an awesome season. It's been a challenging season. It's been a difficult and fun and crazy season for Art and Claire and I. And can I just say, as an older brother to some of you and as a younger brother to others of you, can I just offer my sincere thankfulness for, and thank you to you as our church. Um, this has nothing to do with the message, but just... Art and Claire and I have been so loved in this season um, by you guys. Uh, just meals, checking in on us, caring for us, praying for us. Uh, oftentimes that doesn't get a thank you, but thank you um, from the bottom of my heart. Appreciate you, Crossroads. So thank you all for that. Now, we're going to actually jump into we're, We've got Jonah 4. We're going to cover that right now. We are finishing our Jonah series. It may look like Christmas outside, but we are not in our Christmas series yet. We're finishing Jonah um, in... I think we've got a challenging word for us today. So Jonah chapter 4, I'm going to read it, and then we will jump into it. Jonah chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That that God saved Nineveh displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I, I was yet in my country? 
And that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun to beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the, for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Not a fun way to end. I mean, like, God does this miracle. He saves this city. They are drawn into repentance. And you got to ask, in the arc of the story, why does this chapter even exist? Why does the story continue? The city was saved. We had such a, that would have been a great ending. If I were writing Jonah, that's how I would have ended it, right? Like, because you had the, the, the prophet rebelled and then repented and he preached and people were saved. Happy ever after, right? That's how I would have ended it. But there's such challenge. And honestly, if we look at it, there's a lot of comfort that chapter 4 exists. What chapter 4 means is that the point of the story was not Nineveh. If the main point of the story was to tell you and tell us of Nineveh's repentance, it would have ended in chapter 3. The purpose of this book is to show what I believe is that we've titled the message this. Is a, a grumpy Jonah and a graceful God. See, in the story, we do see a grumpy Jonah, and I'm calling him a pouting prophet. Um, he's upset that God is saving this city. Jonah's been pouting, honestly, this whole story. He's been upset, he's been angry, he's been bitter, been frustrated, and he's been frustrating. He started out, God told him to go to Nineveh. Just to recap, God told him to go to Nineveh, preach judgment. And he said, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I want to be a nonprofit organization. <laughs> Wait. I'm telling you, you have a son, the dad jokes, they just start, <laughs> start flowing. I don't want to be a prophet. I don't want to go to Nineveh. And he runs in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, sails in the, out to the sea in the opposite direction, and a storm comes on the boat, and everybody on the boat is terrified. Jonah think about this. He could have saved all those guys and saved all of their property that they threw into the water. He could have saved it all if he would have been like, you know what, guys? I made God mad. What if we just all sail back and just turn this boat around? 
I bet the storm goes away. He didn't do that because he would rather die than do what God had told him to do. So he makes murderers out of these sailors. They throw them into the, out of the boat, into the water, and then he gets eaten by a fish. And you can imagine how those guys felt. Probably not great. He gets eaten by this fish, and then, while he's in the fish, he has this repentant moment where he's like, God, I'll, I'll do what you tell me to do. And so he gets spit up back on land, goes to Nineveh, preaches to Nineveh, they repent. And now he is sitting outside Nineveh, frustrated, angry. What's the issue here? Well, ultimately we see something in Jonah, and the reality is that Jonah hates Nineveh. Why does he hate these people so much? Well, Jason covered this a bit last week when we were talking about the Nineveh and their atrocities that they committed. They invented new ways of killing people. They were responsible for so many untold numbers of dead Hebrews. Jonah hated them for this. And make no mistake, that city deserved the punishment of God. Last week, Jason talked about how it's such a convicting statement. God loves the oppressed, and we love to preach how God loves the oppressed, but God also loves the oppressor. He loves the persecutor. He cares for all people. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count it slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's easy for us to look down on Jonah. How could he feel this way? He's a prophet, and the whole city came to repentance. That's the stuff of dreams for prophets and preachers. The whole city, if I preached and everybody got saved, I'd be praising God. This is awesome. That's incredible. This book, it was written about Jonah, but it was not written for Jonah. This book was written for the Hebrew readers. This book was honestly, church, it was written for you and me to read, to be convicted by, and to bring our lives more into alignment with the heart of God. See, in the coming years, Nineveh would once again slip into that same evil that they were guilty of. They would conquer Israel, and they would take many Hebrews captive. And I wonder and think about how this word of the Lord would have struck those Hebrews living in captivity in Assyria. As they open up their holy book and read holy words from their holy God, talking about how he loves the people who are oppressing them and holding them captive, there is no doubt they would have been tempted and a lot of them were tempted to hate the Assyrians who were holding them captive. But that is counter to the word of God. That's how this book would have struck some of them. God loves the people that I hate. God loves the people that we hate. The question has to be asked of us crossroads. Who do we hate? The question has to be asked of me. Who do I hate? Can I just be honest with you? As a pastor of your church, as a pastor here that serves and works and and takes a paycheck from this church, I am guilty of hating people. I'm guilty of it. On October 7th, this will strike a chord with some of you. On October 7th, in Israel, Hamas terrorists crossed over the Gaza border into Israel and committed atrocities like we haven't seen since the Holocaust. They ripped babies from their mother's arms and killed them in front of them. They they took captive men, women, children, grandmothers, grandfathers, and took them into captivity to be tortured, to be raped. They shot people. They were just at a concert. They did horrible, horrible things. And I watched these videos, and I was filled with hatred for those people, for what they did. And I watched the gruesome footage 
And I remember telling Wes in the office, I was like, those Hamas terrorists that died in Israel, they died, they were killed by the IDF and sent straight to hell, and I was happy about it. That was justice of the Lord in my mind. And it is, make no mistake, justice of the Lord. Because God is just, but hear me, God loved each and every single one of those Hamas terrorists. He loved them. And he loves the ones that are still alive right now. He loves them. Here in Jonah, we see this Hebrew prophet sent to preach to the equivalent in that day of these Hamas terrorists. It's hard to wrap your mind around, but God truly does love all people. He loves the people that we hate. See, he wants the murderer to come to faith. He wants the abortionist to come to salvation. He wants the slaveholder and the sex trafficker and the racist and the segregationist to experience his forgiveness. He desires for the communists and the capitalists to all come to him. He wants Republicans and Democrats to lay down their lives at the foot of the altar. Heck, he loves Eagles fans and Astros fans. <laughs> he loves all people and all who are listening at my voice, whether you're here in person and watching online or it's months down the road and you're just checking out our Jonah series, God loves you. And he wants you. And it does not matter your past. This is the heart of God that none should perish and all should repent. Every single person. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. Speaking of this repentance. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. The word for displeased here is the Hebrew word ra. Which means evil. And we're going to see this in the chapter later on. It means evil. This word raw, it's the same word used for exceedingly. So in this verse, this one verse, the word raw is used twice to describe Jonah's feelings at the works of God. Jonah feels that the works of God were evil, and not just evil, exceedingly evil in his eyes. Jonah, who is a prophet of the Lord, sees the Lord and his ways is exceedingly evil. Jonah hates the heart of God here. He hates the heart of the Lord. And I believe, can I just speak very bluntly, I believe some of us might need to repent of this same sin. We hate the heart of God. Now before you boo me off the stage, and you're like, J.D., we don't hate God. I'm at church. Like, I love the heart of God. Like, before you do that, just hear me out. Jonah hates the heart of the Lord. Why? Because he hates people that God loves. Look at, let's look at Jonah first, and then we'll examine ourselves. In the first chapter, why does Jonah run? See, we don't know why he runs until the fourth chapter. Because in the first chapter, he's like, I don't want to go to Tarshish. And you could read all sorts of things into that. Like, I am not too keen if God calls me to go be a missionary in China and die for my faith, like, I want to say I'll do it, but I'm not sure I'm super keen on that, because it's a scary thing to do, right? Like, my, my thought, reading Jonah maybe for the first time, might be thinking, well, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, because Nineveh would kill him. But here in chapter 4, we recognize the true reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. It says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, Jonah did not disobey God. 
because he was afraid of how the Ninevites would react. He disobeyed God because he knew that God would forgive the Ninevites. It's interesting. It may be convicting for some of us here. What drove Nineveh's rebellion was their lack of knowledge of God's word. What drove Jonah's rebellion was his seminary degree. See, he knew the heart of God. And this is the challenging thing. He knew the heart of God, but he had not applied that heart to his own. Church, if we learn all that there is to know about this word and we study it and we, and we pray, like if we, if we dive into this day in, day out, every moment of every day, but we do not apply the heart of God to our own heart, we are no better than Jonah. Because it has not shifted how we see the world. That it has not infected our hearts so much so that we love our neighbor. Jonah knew intellectually what it was to love his neighbor, but he had not applied it to his heart. Church, what we've been suggesting this Sunday, every Sunday, all year, is to decide to follow the Lord, to decide to do this. We've been suggesting all year, be doers of the word. It's not easy, it's hard. But that's what it means to follow the heart of God. Be doers of the word. It's hard to look in the face of someone who's wronged you and forgive them and find compassion and love for them. It's hard to do that. You might be like, J.D., it's hard. I can't do that. Well, can I just challenge us for a second? That was the heart of Jesus. That is the heart of Jesus. See, Jesus looked in the eyes of Peter before he betrayed him, and his heart was moved with compassion and love. He looked in the eyes of Judas. He looked in the eyes of the Sanhedrin. He looked in the eyes of Barabbas and Pilate. He looked in the eyes of the soldiers who drove nails into his hands and into his feet and, and cast lots for his robe. He looked in the eyes of Paul, who was persecuting his church. He looked into my eyes and was moved with compassion and with love, despite my rebellion. Whether you, if you know Jesus, he looked into your eyes. In the midst of your rebellion, in the midst of your disobedience, God's word says he demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died. He looked in your eyes at the worst moment in your life and he has compassion and love for you. If you don't know Jesus, he's looking in your eyes right now, right in this moment with nothing but compassion and love for you, desiring that you should not meet condemnation but would meet repentance and forgiveness and salvation. That's the heart of God. This is the heart of God that we, as we surrender to this heart, would love those who persecute us. Two years ago, there was a story that absolutely wrecked me. Um, some of you will recognize the story. Some of you will know it. Some of you might have really close connections to this. It was just a mesquite. A mesquite police officer named Richard Houston was killed in the line of duty two years ago. And his daughter, Shelby, during his funeral service proceeded to demonstrate a compassion and a love that showed her unquestionable love for the heart of God. I want to read an excerpt from her speech. She said this, I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty, and I've heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached 
for those who don't know Jesus and their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me, but as it has happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There's been anger and sadness, grief and confusion, and a part of me wishes I could despise the man that did this to my father, but I cannot get any part of my heart to hate him. All I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. When I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I get to spend time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream, not to yell at him, not to scold him, but simply to tell him about Jesus. That right there is the heart of a young lady that has allowed her heart to be shaped by the heart of God. I don't know the pain in your life. I, there's, there's horrible things that have happened to people in this room, and I, I can't speak to all of that. I don't, I don't know all that. I don't know the pain. I don't know the bitterness that you have to deal with because of the actions of others. All I'm saying is, is this. As believers in a God that loves and pursues the broken, we are called to forgive and offer salvation to all. Our desire should be in line with the desire of our Father that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So Jonah is sitting here pouting. And while he's pouting, we see another part of his problem. We see his messed up priorities. See messed up priorities in the heart of Jonah. I'm going to reread verse 6 through 9. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So he's exceedingly angry at God saving a city, but he's exceedingly glad about a plant. Intentionality with the language here. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind in the sun to beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. So Jonah here is made to be glad because of the plant and then fiercely angry about the plant's death. Here's something that's challenging. He cared far more about this plant than he did the thousands of people in the city. That sounds crazy to us. We might be like, Jonah's an idiot. Like, it's just a plant, dude. Like, find another plant or sit in your tent. You just made a booth. Like, sit in the, I don't, what's your issue, man? And we might sound, we're like, ah, oh, it sounds crazy. But if we can get real here for a second, we live in a land where you can go to prison for cracking an egg of an eagle but in many states, you can kill a baby up until the moment that baby is born. Our priorities are out of whack. And I love eagles. I got no issue with eagles, but I love babies infinitely more. And God loves babies infinitely more than that eagle. And he loves it more than careers. And he loves it more than finances. And he loves it more than awkward life situations. God loves that baby. And we spend time. We, we prioritize that over what it should be, we prioritize our kids' sports over their discipleship and their time in church. And listen, I love sports. I don't want to brag or anything. I got second place on the Crossroads Turkey Bowl, all right? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a sight to behold. I mean, I'm just saying, I couldn't walk for the next four days, but I was, oh well, you know, I prioritize that. We prioritize these sports over 
discipleship. Did you know the odds of a student athlete going pro? Any level of professional sports, like, I mean, I'm talking like part-time over in Europe, is 0.023%. You know what the odds of each and every one of our kids standing before the Lord one day on Judgment Day? 100%. We prioritize things that, that don't matter. You know what the odds, the odds are far more likely that our kids will, will grow up and will raise children of their own. Wouldn't it be a lot more important for us to show them what discipleship looks like than how to win a Super Bowl? Now, if your kid wins a Super Bowl, then that's pretty awesome. But like, most of us won't. But most of us are finding ourselves raising children. And it might have been nice to know a little bit more what discipleship looks like. We can give that to our kids. We prioritize things that don't matter. We prioritize popularity. Perhaps we're concerned with what loving people would mean for our image. Like, I wonder if Jonah was concerned about going back home and telling all of his friends, yeah, saved Nineveh. They might be upset with him. He just saved the city of their enemies. I don't know how good you guys are with maps, but let's just say this is a map, right? Your directions, that way is what? East, if that map's that way is east, and that would mean that way is what? West. Jonah's house is over here. Nineveh's over here. But the Bible says that he went out of the city, which direction? East. He's not headed back home. He's setting up shop to watch Nineveh get destroyed to the east. He's, you got to wonder if he's afraid to go back home because people might be like, why did you save Nineveh? Why would you do that? He's concerned about what people will think about him. We ought to care far more about the Lord's opinion of, of us than others. We chase after money. We prioritize money. We chase after promotion. We re refuse opportunities to be generous. I had a mentor. He would say this. He would say, never ever suppress a generous impulse. Never suppress a generous impulse. Because nothing in your flesh is ever going to tell you to be generous. If something inside of you is telling you to be generous, it is the Holy Spirit. So whether it is giving money to your church, giving money to a homeless man on the street. If you have a generous impulse, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Don't suppress that impulse. But we do that whenever we prioritize money above the mission of God. Nothing in our flesh will tell us to do that. So when our spirit tells us to do that, we need to give our money away. Give it to people. Be generous. We prioritize comfort over the mission. Verses 6 through 9, I'm going to read it again. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun to beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die. It is far better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. I don't know about you, I almost get secondhand embarrassment for Jonah here. It's an embarrassing statement. God's like, do you do well to do, be angry for the plant? And he's like, yes, I do well. Angry enough to die. But you know what? We get pretty upset too when God starts removing our comforts. And we start getting a little bit embarrassing ourselves when God starts challenging us and calling us to do things that aren't comfortable. God is calling people in this room, I firmly believe this with all of my heart, God is calling people in this room to make a difference for the kingdom. 
right now, if you're listening to my voice, God is calling us, you, me, to make a difference for the kingdom. That's why you're still alive. There's no other reason to be here. It's hard to make a difference for the kingdom when you're worried about a sunburn. God called Jonah to share the news with the Ninevites, and he called them more to that. He called them to care about, he called him to care about the Ninevites. I firmly believe God is calling us as a church to step up our evangelistic efforts. I believe that with my whole heart. God is calling each of us to step up our evangelistic efforts, to preach the gospel to those who don't hear it. One of Jonah's flaws here is that he went out of the city and built a booth for himself to stay in. You don't think the dude who saved the town could get a hotel room? You don't think somebody would have taken him in? He's like, no, I'm going to go camp outside the city. Who loves camping? I mean, camping, gosh, like, there's any number of houses for him to stay in. People, he probably could have stayed, the king repented. He probably could have shacked up with the king. But no, he, he leaves, and he builds this booth, which is essentially just a tent. He moved away from an opportunity for discipleship and built a house to watch all these people be condemned by God. I have a fear that we as a church, that me as a human being, we are simply building our houses, sitting and waiting for the destruction from God of our city. We are sitting in our houses, waiting on all of those around us to die. We do this because we've prioritized our comfort above the needs of others. I've done this myself. I was very convicted last night. I invited somebody to church at my apartment complex because I was convicted by this text. And I'm thinking to myself, I live in this apartment building with all of these people, and I know like three of my neighbors. And, and I, I don't preach the gospel to them. And they, have I just built a comfortable house for me and my wife and my son to live and to just sit and watch everyone around us die and go to hell? Is that when I'm just, just watching it? I prioritize my own comfort over their needs. We, we have a message of repentance that leads to salvation, and it's good for every single person. If they would repent and cry out to the Lord, he will save them. And we have that message, and they need it because 100% of them will one day stand before the Lord. And some of them will be allowed into heaven because their relationship with him and others will be sent away to eternal condemnation. And you just got to wonder if they think to themselves like, wow, I wish one of those neighbors who had known I didn't know Jesus would have said something. Or did we just all sit and watch them die? I see this pouting prophet, although he shared the good news he didn't fall through with discipleship, living outside the city. I see this pouting prophet. I see these messed up priorities. Finally, I see a gracious God. See, here we see God continually pursuing and caring for Jonah, and that is grace of the Lord. As a parent, whenever you correct and challenge your child, it is out of love and out of desire for them to, to do better and to be better and to experience better. Jonah had a bad attitude this whole time, and yet God is still caring for him. Jonah hadn't had a great look, and God is still pursuing him. Here we see that God is teaching him a lesson. Look at the text, verse 6. 
It says, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that he might be a shade over his head. And catch this, to save him from his discomfort. Now, just a thought, if you don't mind us diving into this a little bit. To save him from his discomfort. He might expect that the discomfort is the sun. Like, you know, he wants shade. But then God takes away the plant. So maybe that wasn't the discomfort. And I started thinking about this and looked into the Hebrew word for that discomfort. To save him from this discomfort, it's the Hebrew word ra, which means evil. God is not trying to save Jonah from the sun. He's trying to save Jonah from the evil that is in Jonah's heart. See, put your finger there, verse 1, or uh, 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 verse 6 of chapter 4, and then jump back to chapter 1. Verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That evil is that same Hebrew word, ra. So God is not saving Jonah from the sun. He's saving Jonah from the evil, the raw in his heart. See, God loves the people of Nineveh, and despite their evil, their raw, God loves them so much that he wants to save them. And God loves Jonah, and despite the evil in his heart, that raw, God wants to save Jonah. See, he sought to save evil from Jonah, and here God is seeking to save Jonah from his. See, in God's grace, he is teaching Jonah a lesson. That lesson that he is teaching him is that God is allowing Jonah to see and to understand God's own heart more. See, in this text, we see why God values people. If you look in verse, or we'll read verse 7 through 11. So God, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun to beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you, make, you, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity that great that city Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? See, in this text, we see that God values people. And we see how messed up Jonah's priorities are. And God loves people, and he has a heart to save those who are lost and destined for hell. Destined for death. Jonah pitied the plants that he did not create. And he wanted to throw away all of those people who God loved so deeply and who he created and grew. God tells this to Jonah, and he tells this to us, that we might embrace his heart of a God that loves people and that we would apply it to our lives. See, God is not content to just save the city. He wants to save Jonah from himself. He wants to save Jonah. If you look in verse 11, and should I not penny Nineveh, that great city, which there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right from the left, also much cattle. Some commentators read this text and they think and suggest that this is a number of the people who were in the city of Nineveh. 120,000, that's a large city back in that day. 
I think that's what this means. And they think the application of this, and I think it's a true application, regardless if this text means it or not, a true application is that God loves people who don't know his word. And God wants to use people who follow him to share his word with those same people who don't know it. Because God wants all to come to repentance and none to find death. He wants to save the people. Other commentators view this 120,000 persons as children. Who in your life doesn't know their right hand from their left? My son, he doesn't know his right hand from his left. He's crying about it right now. Um, doesn't know the right hand from their left. God cares about children. And can I just say as a father, I take such comfort in this. God cares about kids. God loves my son. I remember it was the day after he was born. Um, I don't cry, generally. Like, it's not, it's not like a he-man. Like, I just don't. Like, I'm not super emotional when it comes to that sort of stuff. I'm not like a crier. Like, when my wife came down the aisle, I was thrilled to death and amazed and excited, and that was the best day of my life, but I didn't cry. Not to de- disparage what that moment meant for me, but I didn't cry, but I was, I was holding my son the day after he was born. His mom was in the shower, and I found myself holding him, and I just got moved to tears as I began to think about, I began to bawl, weep, holding my son, as I began to think about Wow, God, like how much I loved him, and I begin to think about how much God loves me. And God loves me so much. And God loves you so much. And God loves your kids so much. And he does not want death to find them. He does not want, he doesn't want suffering to find them. He wants salvation and repentance and forgiveness for their lives, and he wants that for you. God cares about our kids. He wants them to have the opportunity to follow him. That's why we invest so much time, effort, and money into our kids' ministry. We, we want that to be a priority. That's why we invest in our student ministry. We want your kids to have opportunity to follow Jesus. We want that so badly, and it's a priority for us. But even more than that, God wants that for you in your life with your kids. See, God did not give my son to Trisha. He did not give my son to Titus. Did not give my son to Wes, Zach, or Jaden. Gave my son to me to disciple, to pour into, to love. Because he loves my son, he gave him to me. Because he loves your kids, he gave them to you, for you to disciple. See, it's not there. It's not Jason's job to disciple my son. It's my job to disciple my son. And can I speak very frankly and very transparently? We've been writing things on the board in the background, like in the back of the sanctuary, what God is calling you to do, the thing that God has called me to do and the thing I wrote on the back wall is to disciple and love and lead my family. Because I have not done that in my first two years of marriage. I have not done a great job of that. And I felt that as I have this baby, so much more weight, and I recognize, like, for the sake of my marriage, for the sake of my kid, I, I need to disciple them. I need to lead them to follow Jesus. I need to lead them to the heart of God. And show them what the heart of God looks like by the way that I love my neighbor, by the way that I love them, by the way that I dive into God's word, by the way that I preach God's word, and by the way that I worship. I need to show them what it means. I need to bring my son to church to show him that it matters. I need to teach him how to read God's word. These are things that God has not tasked Trisha with. He's tasked me with. God has not tasked 
our church with discipling your children specifically. He's tasked you with doing it. And he did it because he loves your kids and he loves you. Will we ultimately follow? Will we do what he's called us to do? There's some truth here that I would love us to, we're going to kind of finish on this. Love us to see here. I don't know if you guys have ever seen The Truman Show. Um, It's a funny movie. I don't know. Nobody's seen The Truman Show. The first service, I was like, anybody seen The Truman Show? Everybody went, hmm. And I was like, they've got thoughts on The Truman Show. That's great. Uh, It's got Jim Carrey. It's a funny movie. I recommend it loosely. I mean, it's fine. Um, Kind of a messed up concept, though. It's about this guy, uh, this unwanted pregnancy, his baby was born, and he was adopted by this TV studio. And this TV studio essentially made this fake world in which they raised this baby and put him on TV, and everybody just watched this baby live his life. And none of the people in his life were real. They were all actors. And everybody watched it, and they were like, oh, what's Truman doing today? And you could tune in, you could see what was going on. It's kind of a messed up concept. He was the star of his show, but he had no idea. Everybody was focused in on him. I think sometimes we view our relationship with God, though, as the opposite. And just bear with me for a second, as, as the opposite of that. We almost view our relationship with God as if we're just somehow like a means to an end for him. Like he just wants to use us to do what he tells us to do, and then, you know, he's, he's good with that. And I wonder if Jonah had that moment where he's just like, God, you saved the city, but I'm frustrated about it. And in chapter 4, we see a beautiful thing, because God pursues him even in his frustration. God saved all of those people, those thousands and thousands of people, and God still went after the one Jonah. We serve a shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. The ironic thing here is the one he was going after was one of his prophets. And as a pastor, I take such comfort in that. Because there are times as I'm in ministry, I feel like I'm pouring myself out. I'm doing what I can to, to preach, to lead, to do the thing. And I just like go to sleep at night and I just feel poured out, feel drained, I'm tired of, of all of it. And I, I recognize in this text as I was reading it that God still cares about me. And God still wants a relationship with me. It's the opposite of this. We view it as the opposite of Truman Show. God's discipling other people. He's caring about other people. He's doing other things in the church. Well, God's working in their life, but he doesn't care about mine. That's not true. We read Jonah from the perspective of, wow, God pursues the one. He pursues me. He cares for me. He desires to know you. He desires for you to know more of his heart and even more that you apply it to your own. It's not enough for him to just use you to accomplish his purposes. He wants to be your best friend. He wants to grow you and develop you. Even though you will mess up and you don't always get it, he still wants you, and he still wants you to repent and follow him. Some of us may, in this room, we'll be like Ninevites. We're like, I've come, this is the first time I've gone to church my entire life. And you've been living in rebellion your entire life. God has a heart for you, and he wants you to come to repentance. He cares about you, and he loves you. Some of you have been in church your entire life, but you've got bitterness, you've got things you're working on, you've got all this stuff going on in your life, and you're like, does God even care about me? Yes, he cares about you. He's pursuing you. Just the fact that you're in church today is testament to the fact that God is still breathing breath into your lungs, and he brought you to church today, perhaps for the reason, the express purpose, to grow deeper in relationship with him again to repent of things that you've 
of sins you committed and to say, God, you're on the throne in my heart. Last thing I see here, though. Time is limited. I mentioned that the book ends with a question because it does end with a question and I think that's to teach us and show us um, because Jonah didn't answer the question so we don't know how it worked out but the question is for us. How are we going to respond? But there's another significance to this question. Did you know there's only two books in the entire Bible? They end with a question. They end with a question mark. The other one, this is Jonah, the other one is the book of Nahum. And just in case you weren't in Nahum this morning in your quiet time, um, Nahum is a book that is all about the destruction of the city of Nineveh. In verse 19, verse, chapter 3, verse 19 of the book of Nahum, it says this, this is the last verse in that, in that book. There is no easing of your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. You know what the word evil there is? Ra. Ra. See, God does not want any of us to perish, but hear me, he will judge evil. And he will judge Ra. And if you recognize the grace that today is for you, you have an opportunity to repent from the raw in your heart. But that time is limited. Nineveh repented, then they didn't, and they met destruction. Everyone who's alive right now has an opportunity to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior and be saved from the coming destruction that is coming. But every moment that you have is a moment of grace an opportunity to, re- to repent, to turn your face to the Lord, to surrender yourself to the heart of God. Perhaps some of us are like Jonah, though, and you intellectually know what it means to follow God, and you know what, what his heart is like, but you have not surrendered yourself to that heart. You have not applied that heart to your heart. Today can be the day for that. You can, you can sur- surrender once again. You can say, God, I want to surrender to you. God, use me. Help me to love people. Help me to forgive. Help me to work through bitterness. You can do that. If you don't know Jesus, today can be the day. We got people in the prayer corners at the, while we're singing. Feel free to come talk to them. Find out what it means to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're like this Jonah, and you have been living in a soft rebellion, Today can be the day for repentance. We can show you what it means. We can tell you about what it means to repent and walk in accountable holiness. We would love nothing more than to show you how to allow the heart of God to shift and change your heart more and more into the image that he would have you to be. It's a challenging book, but it's comforting. I pray that we embrace it. Lord, we love you. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done. For, we praise you for your word. The fact that this book of Jonah was written with all of its unflattering nature to the prophet. Lord, we thank you for the lesson that you taught him. Lord, I pray that we would receive that lesson as well. Lord, I pray for each soul here. Perhaps some of us feel like we're cast out on the edge of the city, and God, you're working all around us but not working in us. Lord, I pray that we would surrender ourselves to be worked in, that we would open up our hearts to receive challenge and conviction from you. I pray for families. I pray for pray for parents, that you would show them what it's like, that you do care about their children, and that you do care about their discipleship. 
Lord, you love us. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.